Here in Zechariah chapter 12, the burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. And here's this word burden again found in uh, chapter 9 verse 1 and also found in Malachi 1. We'll be getting there only three times in the Old Testament. It's a unique word. It means a heavy message but with urgency. And so again, it's a heavy thing, but it's got, the word has to get out. And, and Zechariah feels it burning to get that scripture out to you. And it says, Thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens and lays the foundations of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him. So he's saying, you know, remember who's speaking this. It's God who made the universe. And we try to fathom how huge the universe is. And we can't even, our, our mind starts getting uh, you know, fumes coming out as the gears try to grind to try to imagine how vast our universe is. But yet in Isaiah 40, it says God's hand spans the universe. <laughs> so again, to God, our universe that's so huge, we can't hardly even imagine it. But with God, it's something that he could pick up like a, a volleyball or a basketball, just pick it up in his hand, our entire universe. And then it says, and in, in, in particular, he made our planet Earth, our planet Earth is such a tiny little spot in our Milky Way galaxy and even tinier yet within our universe. And then he says on that tiny little piece of sand called Earth, he made you, another tinier little piece of dirt. And the Bible tells us in Psalms 139, that God created you in particular, uniquely. I love the uh, NIV, it says he knitted together in the mother's womb. I love that term. It's like God knitted you in your mother's womb. He made that little nose and those little ears and that face. And he, he knows every single hair upon your head by number. So God, who is incredibly vast, we can't even imagine it, but yet comes down to you on planet Earth in a very personal and intimate way, this tiny little creature on this tiny little planet in a huge universe. And he wants to say to you today, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness. Now this Hebrew word literally means to, to be tossed to and fro, staggering like a drunken man. It'd be sort of like a picture of a, uh, a ship on a sea and everybody being bounced around. It also has a sense of fear, of trembling. And so uh, Jerusalem's going to be this cup of trembling and staggering around to all the surrounding people. So indeed it is. Israel is this place that's sort of like tug-of-war throughout the centuries has been tossed to and fro, pulled here and there. The dividing lines of Israel constantly being divided up. Who gets what portion and constantly being pulled back and forth. And of course, uh, many nations surround Israel. You have Lebanon and Syria and Jordan and Saudi Arabia and Egypt. And then just right out past that, you have Iraq and Iran and Turkey and Libya. And it says there, it's going to be a very heavy stone for all peoples. Now in these days, they had a contest where all the young men would try to pick up big boulders and see who could pick up the biggest boulder. There's places in Europe you can go, and in the middle of the town they have big giant rocks, and it'll tell you who was the last guy who was able to pick it up. You know, sometimes it was 100 years ago. And uh, some guy was able to come in town and pick that giant boulder up and set it back down. And this is the, the, the term that's being used here, and it's saying that it, people are going to come and say, hey, this is my reward, you know. I'm strong enough to take over Israel. And it says here there, it's going to be a heavy stone. They're going to try to pick it up. And then it goes on to say, though, and all who will heave it away will surely be cut in pieces or destroyed. So they come in and try to say, I can take over Israel. I can pick up this big rock and not just lift it up. I can toss it. I'm so tough. But when they try to lift it up, they themselves throw their back out and, and uh, drop that big boulder on their foot. They're the ones who end up getting injured for trying to mess with Israel uh, to begin with. And then it goes on to say, and all who would have, uh, and then those, all nations of the earth are gathered against it. Now I hate that line. Because the Bible tells us at some point in history, all the nations of the world are going to be against Israel. Virtually that's the case today. There are a few nations, but really the only nation of any consequence that supports Israel is us. And that's a very unique thing about us as America. 
We were the very first country in 1948 to recognize Israel as a nation. Other nations that were our allies followed suit sort of out of uh, pressure from us. But we really do support Israel. It's always funny when you go over to Israel, uh, they have a shirt. I'm going to get one the next time. But it says, don't worry, America, Israel's behind you. (laughs) And that's really the case. It's because of our hand of blessing Israel, it says in, in Genesis 12 that God will bless those who bless you. God will curse those who curse you. And boy, you see it. The nations from 1948 that have cursed Israel and even before that, have not prospered, have not been blessed. But we of all nations upon the earth have prospered exceedingly. Yes, we were prospering before 1948, but in in unparalleled ways after that, our nation has soared to a height that no nation in all of human history has attained to with influence in the entire world and, of course, economic strength as well as military strength. And I believe that is because we have supported Israel. The Bible tells us there'll be a day that that will cease, and that saddens me. I hope it's because we have such a revival in America that so many people get saved, that there's so many raptured, that there's hardly anybody left. (laughs) And those handful of Democrats can do whatever they want then. (laughs) But only kidding. People write me letters. You put down the Democratic, you know, I'm Democrat, but whatever, I... It's nothing personal. It's just a joke. Lighten up. But um, it is interesting, though, that George Bush is having uh, favor in the American public like no president before him, at least in the times that we've taken polls. And the Democrats wanting to challenge him in this next election, what is their calling card, if you would? What is their platform? Their platform is, George Bush is this horrible warmonger. Vote us in, and we'll stop this war stuff. And, I don't know if you've caught it, we will stop our support for Israel. Thus, bring peace from all those Arab countries that are terrorizing us. They'll stop terrorizing us once we stop supporting Israel. And that is what they're saying. Now, Lieberman, who happens to be a Democrat, now he got very much upset with that because he himself is a Jew. But outside of that, the other Democrats are very much making that their platform. I I often think, what would things have been like after 9-1-1 if Al Gore were our president? I don't think he would have taken the same action that our president has taken. Maybe in Afghanistan to a point, but definitely not Iraq. But what would have taken place is, is this. Is it would have been some feeble thing, and the world around would have looked at us saying, look, they're, they're not going to respond like we thought they would respond in retaliation. China, man, they're, they're, if it wasn't for the pressure we put against China, they would go over and start attacking Taiwan and Thailand and probably right on down to the Philippines. You got North Korea and South Korea. That would be... Uh, that would release the communists there and create an attack. You'd probably have a lot more wars and, and people that are kept in place in Serbia. The Serbians, the only reason they're not doing what they did to the Croatian and the Bosnians, the Algerians, is because of us. And believe me, if they said, hey, we're not going to retaliate, believe me, they're going to go right back and start killing the Algerians and the Bosnians and Croatians just like they did before. So right now, the world's sort of held in place, and, and these people with the communistic mentality of not going out and taking over, it's because of us. But if they saw us taking a weak fashion towards retaliation, especially of terrorists, it would have been uh, a very different world I think we live in right now. But nevertheless, at some point in time, America is going to change its stance on Israel. And of course, at that point, the UN will get together and get some kind of resolution, and they'll say something like this. Remember that horrible political uh, system that was built in Iraq? And And America went and dismantled it to set the people free. 
Well, now we get together, and we know from Ezekiel 38, it's Gog and Magog, Russia, and then it mentions a number of the Arab countries as well. We want to go and dismantle the Israeli oppressive government of the Palestinians. And they probably will do what we didn't do. That's get a UN resolution. <laughs> and they're going to go down there, and we're going to stand back trying to say, we're Switzerland, leave us alone, we're everybody's buddy, you know. And they're going to go down there and attack Israel. And it tells us in Ezekiel 38, everyone's going to lose. Israel's going to win. Matter of fact, Russia's going to lose five-sixths of its army. And so it saddens me to see that one day it will indeed, all nations will turn. And, and Israel's a heavy stone. Bottom line, it's a heavy stone. You, you, the way the world acts is like Israel's the most important real estate in all the world. It's a little tiny piece of land. And the reality is it's the size of Southern California or Rhode Island. It's, it's really compared to the amount of land the Arab have. It's insignificant. It's a drop. But yet all of these nations have vowed to destroy Israel and have vowed to destroy America because we support Israel. And so even Israel, even though we support Israel, to us it's a heavy stone. It's a heavy stone because we're having to support it. It's costing us with terrorist attacks. It's costing us to keep uh, the support that we have for Israel there to this day. Israel's a heavy stone for those who are against him and those who are for Israel. It's a heavy stone either way. And in verse 4, and in that day, that's the real key phrase talking about the last of the last days, uh, right before the rapture, the tribulation, the millennial reign, says the Lord that I will strike every horse with confusion and the rider with madness, and I will open my eyes on the house of Judah, and I will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. So these people that come against Israel, God's going to start do a confusion there. He's going to blind them. Now, as we look through history, we see this on a number of occasions throughout the Bible, where God just sort of brings confusion. Remember Pharaoh chasing the children of Israel. The children of Israel walked through the Red Sea on dry land. God opened it up. But for some reason, Pharaoh just, in their madness, just stormed into the Red Sea, even though the waters were high on both sides, after the children of Israel, just sort of a madness that they chased in there, and then God caused the waters to crush in on them. We also see, for example, uh, the story with Gideon and the Midianites, and Jehoshaphat, when they came to fight against Israel, God caused the people to wake up in the night and look at their fellow countrymen and, and see an enemy. And they start fighting with each other, and in both of those battles, they all killed each other. Israel didn't even have to use their swords. God just brought a confusion. Remember when the Syrians were trying to attack Israel, and Elijah kept giving words of knowledge to the king of where they were going to come up and stop them. So the king said, we've got to kill Elijah. And they went down and surrounded the city of Elijah, and his servant came in and said, Elijah, we're history. The Syrians, they've totally surrounded the city. And said, God said, oh, Elijah said, God, open, open the eyes of my servant so he can see. And there on fiery chariots all around the mountains above them were the angels of God. He said, whoa, there's more with us than with them. And he said, you're right. And Elijah said, be blinded. And all the children, all those Syrians, they were blinded. They're not physically blinded. They were just sort of in a daze. And Elijah comes out and says, I know where you guys want to go. Follow me. And he, they all follow him right into the city of Samaria where the army of Israel was surrounding them. And they're like, ah, we're dead. And they said, what shall we do? And Elijah said, don't harm anybody. Make a great feast. Show kindness to them. And then the Syrians left and they didn't cause war against Israel for quite some time. So we see that in this battle... God's just going to bring a, a confusion. Now, it's interesting because that's sort of what happened. In 1948, in 1967, and 1973, I could go into detail in all three of those wars. They have books, they have videos out. Very interesting how Israel is completely outnumbered, completely outmanned. Uh, the power, uh, just military power against them is uh, numerous compared to Israel. But God brought a confusion upon uh, the countries surrounding Israel that were attacking them. And Israel, uh, in amazing ways, won each one of those wars. And uh, it's really fun to look at the, the hand of God. But yet, even though they've won these battles in these incredible ways, Israel still doesn't acknowledge God. Most Israelis throughout the world are at best agnostic. They basically say, yeah, there's probably a God, but I can't imagine it. He is, I have no idea who he is. 
Although the Jews go to synagogue, they, they go religiously. They don't really believe in God. They don't believe in the Bible. Uh, there's a very small percentage of Orthodox Jews that really do believe in God and believe in the Bible. And so Israel, they just say, look, man, we're awesome warriors. We can beat anybody. And it's sort of that prideful mentality rather than a humble mentality saying, thank you, Lord. But in verse 5, And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, The inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength, and the Lord of hosts their God. But there is going to come a day when that battle come. I believe it's talking about Ezekiel 38 battle. When they're overwhelmed as the world's coming against them and they win the battle. I believe at that point it's going to really open the eyes of many Jews to say, wow, there is a God, who is he? But unfortunately, their open spirituality is going to open them up not to the Messiah Jesus, but to the Antichrist, who's going to come on the scene proclaiming himself ultimately to be God and calling fire to heaven and doing signs and wonders. He's killed, he's shot in the head, he's supernaturally, uh, at least appears, raised from the dead, and he's blinded in the right eye, his uh, hand is withered, as we looked at in chapter 11 last week. But uh, it's going to cause the world to believe in him, and unfortunately the Jews are going to go that way. But for a season, for a moment, they are going to see God's in the midst, uh, doing exactly what he said, bringing Israel back into the land, which is a miracle. Uh, 1948, they came back and were a nation again. Nothing like that's happened in all human history. But then also that he would protect them from that point forward, and he has, and he will continue to do it. And in verse 6, in that day, I will make the governors of Judah like a fire pan in the woodpile and like the fiery torch in the sheaves. They shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left. But Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, Jerusalem. So he's making it clear. Not, they won't just come back into the land. They will at first. They'll just come back into the land. They'll be in Judah. But then eventually, he says, they will be in Jerusalem. So to us now, it's past history. But very recent history. It's only 1967, guys. Okay? We're, we're, we're talking here, not even uh, 40 years has passed, really, that we, we can say that that's taken place. We're talking less than 40 years. Israel has taken Jerusalem. And so this is exactly what the Bible prophesied thousands of years in advance. And he said when they're there, they're going to be like a, a fiery pan or like a torch. So people come in and try to grab Israel. It's like grabbing a hot pan in the middle of a fire. Singe. Ah, you know, you're going to get burned. Are you reaching and try to grab the end of the, the torch and the torch just sort of blows in your face and burns you? He said, no, you, you try to touch Israel, you're going to get burned. You're going to get wiped out. I'm going to protect them. And in verse 7, the Lord will save the tents of Judah first so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah. And that's exactly what God did. He saved first, uh, Tel Aviv was their capital in 1948, and it wasn't until 67 then he brought Jerusalem in later, just like he talks about here. And in that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the one who is feeble among them, in that day shall be like David. So picture some 85-year-old woman fighting like King David, you know. And then it says, uh, or the Barney Fife, you know, trying to get his gun out of the holster, you know. But no, not in this day. He's going to be like King David. And then the house of David, these mighty warriors, shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. So imagine a guy in a sword fight with God. <laughs> I don't think he's going to win. That's what it's going to be like. They're going to be so empowered um, that nobody's going to be able to defeat them. And in verse 9, And it shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So at that point, God is, has a plan that every nation who has come against Israel will be destroyed. We have a picture of that in Matthew 25. It says that God's going to bring all the nations before him and separate them like sheep and goats. And he's going to say to the, the, the goats, you know, that you did not do it to the least of these, my brethren. You did not do them. And so now I'm going to cast you into hell with the devil and his angels. And God's going to judge those nations and those leaders that brought chaos against Israel. And, and uh, he's going to destroy them in a lake of fire, but also upon the earth. He's going to bring destruction. Ultimately, in the battle of Armageddon, there's one final battle. It, the Bible goes into very great detail in it, uh, how the Antichrist is going to come with his warriors. Uh, Africa is going to rebel. He's going to go up there. The Euphrates is dried up. The 
China is able to come across, and, and ultimately all the, the powers of the world will culminate there in the Jezreel Valley, the Megiddo Valley of Israel today, called the Battle of Armageddon. That valley today, more battles have been fought than any spot on planet Earth, and that will be the final battle. The Lord will appear and fight and win that final battle, destroying all those nations. In verse 10, and I will pour on the house of David. So God's going to pour out His Holy Spirit upon Israel, upon the Jews, and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. There's going to be a spirit of grace and supplication. I pray that God gives us right now that spirit of grace and supplication means intense praying. Every Sunday night we get together to pray and, and there's degrees at times of grace and there's degrees of time of supplication. But how I wish God would give us every Sunday night just an incredible overwhelming grace to pray for ourselves that we would live a holy, righteous life empowered by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses. That our community, their eyes would be open and they would come to Christ and that we would be incredible lights like cities set on a hill that can't be hidden in our workplaces, in the schools, within our community. And that's our heart's desire, that God would just give us a grace, of that spirit of grace and supplication every Sunday night to seek His face with all our hearts. But in that day on, on Israel, there's going to be a special grace and supplication to seek after God. Then they will look on Him, or they will look on me, He says, whom they pierced. It tells us in Psalms 22, a prophecy in verse 16, they pierced my hands and my feet. In Isaiah 53, 5, speaking of Jesus, it says, He was pierced through for our transgressions. And then in John 19, it says that um, they came to Jesus and they were going well, to break the legs of the men, but they didn't break the legs of Jesus because he, he was already dead. And they said, prove it. So they stuck the spear in his side and out came water and blood. And which tells us that Jesus actually didn't die of suffocation, which is normally the cause upon the cross because eventually your body gives out and can't pull yourself back up to get a breath and you just sort of hang there and, and die of suffocation. But he actually died from a broken heart. He actually had a, a, a heart attack there. And from that broken heart is how he died because our sins were upon him. And then it, it says there in John 19, that very thing, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, not a bone of him would be broken, and the scriptures might be fulfilled. They shall look on him whom they pierced. So first of all, the Jews, in the first time, they looked upon him who was pierced in his first coming. You guys remember that story where all the disciples' hearts were hardened after Jesus died. They thought, man, this is true. We followed this guy. We believed in this guy. And he was a hoax. And they had a hard heart. And Jesus appeared from them. And he said, why are you doubting? Why is your heart so hard? And then they saw it was Jesus and they believed. But Thomas wasn't there. And they came back, and Thomas really had a hard heart. He said, no way. Unless I put my finger in his hand and my hand in my, his side, I won't believe in him. And then Jesus appeared and said, poke away, Thomas. You know, put your, finger in your, put your finger in my hand and your hand in my side. And Thomas fell to the ground and said, oh, my Lord, my God. And Jesus said, blessed are you because you see and believe, but more blessed are those who don't see and yet believe. And so there Thomas got to look upon him who was pierced. And then in Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 it says behold he is coming with the clouds and every eye shall see him even those who pierced him referring to the Jews and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. And so this is a picture of Jesus coming at the end of the tribulation period. Now in the three and a half year period the Antichrist is going to proclaim himself to be God. He's going to go actually into the temple and set himself on the Holy of Holies, proclaim himself to be God. And at that point, the Jews' eyes are going to be open. And the Antichrist is going to start this horrible slaughter of the Jews. But the Jews at that point are going to realize it's Jesus and they're going to be mourning. But yet they were warned. It tells us in Revelation there's going to be 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe of Israel who are going to be these radical prophets, these Elijahs, and they're going to go throughout the world. And they're going to be telling people, go to Petra, Three and a half years, the Antichrist is going to proclaim himself to be God. He's not the Messiah. Don't believe in that guy. And so at that point, they're going to, when it happens, they're going to realize it, and they're going to run to the rock city of Petra. Only a small percentage of them, one-third, is going to be able to make it. We're going to learn here later in this chapter, in chapter 13. But then when the Lord does come again, they're going to all be able to behold him. They, the disciples there in Acts 1 were looking up as he was descending in the clouds, and the angel said, what are you looking at? They said, so shall he come in the same way. 
And so they're going to look upon him and they're going to realize we rejected the real Messiah. And their hearts are going to be pierced. And the Holy Spirit's going to pour upon them. And notice what it's going to do. They're going to look upon me, Jesus says. They're going to look upon Jesus. It says again, the one who mourns for his only son. They're going to mourn for him, Jesus. They're going to grieve for him, Jesus. This is how you know a real work of the Holy Spirit has taken place. People's eyes are upon the crucified Lord. They understand the cross. They understand his death. They understand the blood that he shed. And it, it grips them deeply. In John 15, 26, it says, And when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. The Spirit will testify of Jesus. And then in John 16, verse 13 through 15, the same thing, when the Spirit of truth comes, and then he says, and he will glorify me. Jesus is lifted up. Then you know there's been a real work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, no man can come unto me unless the Father draws them. That's how you see the drawing hand of the Father. The Holy Spirit convicts them of sin and of righteousness and of judgment and points them to the crucified Lord. Jesus, through his bleeding and dying for you and raising again, you have the hope of eternal life. And look on there in Zechariah 12, verse 11. And in that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning at Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. This is referring back in 609 B.C. They had a king by the name of Josiah who had died in battle. He was an incredibly righteous king. As a, little, as a young man, they started rebuilding the temple. The, his fathers before him were into pagan worship. They destroyed the temple, destroyed all the copies of the scriptures, but they found one. And they read it to him, and he was broken. He wept, and he said, how can I... He repented and said, what shall we do? And the word came and said, it's too late. The country's going to be destroyed. They've had too many years of wickedness. But because you repented so beautifully, in your lifetime, I will not bring destruction upon this country until after you've died. Well, as he got older, he went out to one battle, won it, and said, hey, I'm pretty tough. I'm a pretty good warrior king like my great-great-grandfather, King David. And then the Egyptians were going through the land, going down over to Syria, or up to Syria, no, down to Syria, or up to Syria, up to Syria. And uh, they were, uh, and he goes out and says, hey, what are you doing? Come on, let's fight. And he goes, no, I'm going down to Syria. And then he told him, look, you're, you're a good little kid. <laughs> Go home before you get hurt. That's what the king of Egypt told him. And he said, no way you fight. And the Egyptians won the battle. And Josiah was killed there in that valley of Megiddo. And the people mourned for him with this incredible intense weeping because of this man who died at a very early age because of foolishness. But he was such a wonderful, righteous king. And no doubt that his death came as a shock to the country. And they're going to mourn for Jesus, King Jesus, in the way they, they mourn for Josiah. And in verse 12... And the land shall mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself. David was the king. And then it says his son, the, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and the wives by themselves. It says the wives by themselves because if you go back to Exodus, the women were commanded to worship separately from the men. And so they do. They pray separately together. Uh, they sit on separate sides, at least of the aisle at the synagogues. When the tabernacle was built, they had a court of men, the court of women. They worshiped separately. But here, he, first of all, he says that the kingly house realizes their failures as leaders. As kings, we worshiped other gods. We led the country astray. And so we repent as the kingly line that we failed the people as leaders. And then he goes on to say, in verse 13, in the family of the house of Levi, which is the priest itself, the wives by themselves, and the family of Shammai, again, a priest, a family of the Levites, by itself and their wives by themselves. And so now the priestly line is saying, we have failed you in the spiritual aspect. We didn't tell you to repent. We didn't proclaim the scriptures as we should. We, we actually were a part of the, the reason that the country fell and, and was destroyed because we weren't the spiritual leaders the way we should be. And they repented. And then all the families that remained, every family by itself and their wives by themselves, it was a public national mourning, but it also happened privately. And this is very important in the Jewish culture because the, the whole Jewish system is sort of to, to be seen of by men. Jesus said that. He says, don't be like the Pharisees. They go into the busiest places and they start praying to be seen of by men. 
Don't do that. You go pray in secret, and your Heavenly Father will see you praying in secret and reward you openly. Now, he wasn't saying only pray in secret. The Bible tells us to pray as a congregation. Matter of fact, the Bible says that's the first thing we should always be doing as a congregation, praying together. In 1 Timothy 2, God's wish is that all the men would get together and lift up holy hands and pray together. But they, they, there, there is within the Jewish mindset, to, to the motivation is that other people will see how spiritual I am. If you go to Israel today, down to the Welling Wall, and you say, well, there's some Jews praying, I'd like to get a picture of that. You think, I don't want to bother them. And that's what we would think, right? But when a, a Jew, they see that you're going to take a picture of them, they sort of turn towards you, and boy, then they really start getting into it, you know? They love it. You're not interrupting anything. Boy, this is why I'm here, to be seen of by men. And, but this is a real morning. It's a real private thing. It's an individual thing. They really do have a brokenness in their heart before the Lord. You know, this is how true salvation comes. They first realize, I need to, I need to look unto God. My life is messed up. I'm destroying myself and I'm hurting others. And the very next step is to realize, I have pierced him. I have wounded him. In Psalms 51, David said, after he had sinned with Bathsheba and killed her husband Uriah, he said, against you, you only have I sinned. He said, hold it. Didn't he sin against Bathsheba Didn't he, and her whole family? Didn't he sin against Uriah and his whole family? Yes, he did. But David understood it. My sin against God was so vast so huge in comparison to my sin against man. It's like comparing the ocean to one drop. It's against you. It's like you only have I sinned against. See, that's when real, true salvation comes. When we really understand that God has made me for his plan, for his purpose, and I've done my own thing. Instead of my feet being used in the way that he planned my feet to be used, I've gone off to the bars and to the drugs and to the prostitutes and to the partying. And instead of my mouth being used to, to be used for his glory, to speak his name, to worship him, it's full of cursing and bitterness and swearing and hatefulness. And instead of my life being in the narrow road that leads to life, being used in the way to his glory, time has passed now. God's plan was to grab a hold of me in my youth and develop me. And the time I'm at, the age I'm at now, I would be a mighty man of God doing great things for his kingdom. But here I am. I, I've missed out on God's plan for my life. Oh, he's got another plan, his B plan or D plan or Q plan or Z plan, whatever it is. God's going to take me where I'm at and move me forward. But I've blown it. And the realization that I have taken this incredible gift of life, time I can't get back, energy I can't get back, opportunities I can't get back. They're wasted, they're gone in foolishness and sin and in stupidity. And not only that, I mocked him. I laughed at people that went to church. I made fun of people who prayed. It was as if I spit upon the cross. It's as if I walked upon the cross. I didn't care that Jesus Christ died and rose again for me. I had no concept of it. And, and to realize how foolish and how stupid, how sinful you've been, that is a godly sorrow. Look, if you would, over to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 with me here quickly. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, starting there in verse 9. It says, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry but that your sorrow led to repentance. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9. For you, did, you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. Now verse 10. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourself. Get rid of that sin. I'm never going to go back to that old putrid life I lived in. What indignation. What fear. What a godly reverence you have in awe of God. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. In all things you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. You see, true salvation comes when with your will you volitionally say, I understand I'm going to submit myself to God and live for him in totality. Not, oh, I believe in Jesus. James 2 says, well, even the demons believe in Jesus. They see the angels in heaven. What's the point? 
Well, no, 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 you got to understand. I really love Jesus. Well, how do you know? Every time amazing grace is sung, I weep. I think about my grandpa's funeral and how much I miss him. And oh, I just... Well, the demons, it says they hear the name of Jesus and they shudder. They fall down and curl up in the fetus position. They're in fear of him. They have an emotional response. That's not... A person is not saved because of that. They came out to John Baptist saying, okay, I'll be baptized by you. And John said, I'm not going to baptize you. You first show fruits of repentance. What did he mean by that? They were saying, okay, you know, I'll, I'll join your religious club. What do I do? You know, give me the religious hoops to, to go through and I'll go through them. Go to church. Oh, I'll go to church, you know. Get baptized. Oh, baptize me. Oh, take communion. Sure, you know. And it's going through these motions. And, and John said, I'm not going to let you go through the motions to think that you've done what you're supposed to do. I want to see in your heart a change in life. And when there's a godly sorrow, it's not a sorrow of saying, poor me, my life's so messed up and I'm so stupid and so mean to everybody. And, you know, if I had better parents, you know, I wouldn't be the way I am today. And, you know, it's not a sorry for yourself and a self-pity. It's a sorry that I have blown it before God. And it's not going to happen another day. Satan's not going to steal another second. I'm not going to waste another day. I'm going to beat my body in subjection. I'm going to deny myself, take up that cross, and I'm going to follow Jesus. And you begin to live in that way. Your life is full of repentance. You throw that away. You stop doing that. You stop saying that. You stop going there. There's a real clear repentance. I've turned around. That's what the word repentance means. You turn around 180 degrees. And that's what you're doing. And that's what they did here. Corporately, individually, they had a godly sorrow. And it says that godly sorrow leads to salvation. We'll jump over to chapter 13 here quickly of Zechariah. It says, Now in that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. And let me tell you something, guys. That fountain's flowing right now. For the Jews... It says in 2 Corinthians 3, there's a veil over their eyes. They can't see it. But to Jews or Gentiles alike, if you will see it, it flows for you right now. In 1 John 2, it says, little children, I write this to you that you don't sin. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who will not only forgive your sin, but cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It's flowing right now. God wants to forgive your sin, cleanse you from the guilt of your sin. Take it away. All you have to do is come. Confess your sin. He's faithful and righteous to forgive you of that sin. But you've got to come unto him. And then in verse 2, And it shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, that they shall no longer be remembered. So that's great. You say, oh, remember the ancient god of Dagon or Moloch or remember Buddha and you know, that little statue? Nobody's going to remember it. It's all going to be gone. It's going to be wiped away history. No more pagan worship, only one worship, and that's the king of kings. And I will also cause the prophets, in context it's referring to false prophets, talking about idols and prophets and unclean spirits, and the unclean spirits to depart from the land. It tells us that in Revelation 20 that Satan's going to bind up the false prophet, uh, Satan himself and all the demons, and lock them away uh, in, in Hades there. And it shall come to pass that if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who begot him will uh, say to him, You shall not live because you have spoken lies in the name of the Lord, and his father and mother who begot him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. Now, let me explain something here. We are in a time right now, in the last moments of the last days, any time now, we're going to have the rapture of the church. And that's going to start the clock ticking for a seven-year tribulation period upon this planet. At the end of that seven-year tribulation period, the Lord's going to come back. We're going to come back with him. And the Lord is going to, after the battle of Armageddon, he's going to heal the earth to a degree. And then he's going to release the Jews from Petra, and then other people have survived that believe in the Lord. Those who don't believe in the Lord, he's going to judge them and they'll go into Hades. But those who believe in the Lord will remain alive on the planet Earth and begin repopulating Earth for a thousand years called the millennial reign of Christ. Now in that thousand years, the Bible says Christ lives on Earth and rules and reigns from Jerusalem. And it says in Revelation 19 that Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So if Jesus is teaching, we don't need prophets. And so any prophets that will be in existence 
in that millennial reign are going to be false prophets simply by definition, the fact that they exist. And so when some guy starts teaching something other than Jesus is saying, it's going to be stopped. It tells us in Psalms 2 that Christ is going to rule with a rod of iron, like taking a big metal pipe and hitting a clay pot. That's what Christ is going to do. He's not going to put up with anything. He's just going to judge it and whap, dead, right on the spot. And now, not in this time, but in the millennial reign, it's going to be like an Old Testament type of judicial system. And in the Old Testament, when a child sinned against its parents, the parent would bring them out into the city and the whole city would kill them. And here this guy's prophesying, the parents saying, no way, you're not going to live. But notice this. They have such a love for God that they will not even, their son whom they love so much, put up with any heresy, even from their own son. Jesus teaches this. In Matthew chapter 10, make a note of it, in verse 34 to 39, it says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus said, guys, I have to be so first that that next second person in your life, there's so many light years in between, that if you were to compare love with a love for them, the only word you could use is hate. <laughs> now God teaches us to love our children, to love our wives, to love our husbands. He's not saying to hate them. And I don't believe these parents hated their son who put him to death. But they're saying that God is so first that the next second person in line is way behind in second. Christ is number one. And that's God's heart's desires, that he would be so first that even if the bonds of parents or brothers or even husband and wife have to be broke to keep your right relationship with God, so be it. It says in 1 Corinthians 7, if the underpleaver is wanting to depart, let them depart. You're not bound in such matters. It's always sad. God hates divorce. But sometimes those things happen because you're not going to sway from following the Lord. Well, in verse 4, it says, and it shall be in that day that every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies, they will not wear a robe of coarse hair to deceive. So they're not going to walk around like a prophet and people going, oh, who they are. And, uh, and if anybody knows they're a prophet, they're hearing these voices or getting these ideas that are contrary to Christ. They're not going pub- to publicize it. Now, some try to make verse 5 and 6 connected to verse 4. I don't believe they are. I believe verse 5 through 9 are connected and starting a new thought. And it's a thought concerning Jesus. And when we get down to verse 7, it's a clear prophecy of Jesus spoken of in the Gospels about the sheep scattering. But notice in verse 5, it says, And he will say, not he the prophet, but he Jesus will say, I am no prophet. And this is exactly what he said. They came to Jesus in, in uh, Matthew chapter 10. Uh, excuse me. In um, Matthew chapter 16. Jesus sat down with his disciples and, and he asked them, who do men say that I am? And they said prophets. They all thought he was a prophet. They said, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or some other prophet. And Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And he said, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. Now Jesus was the prophet after Moses. It tells us that in the book of Acts. But he was far more than a prophet. He was the son of God. And then what does he say? No, it's not, not a prophet. You can't give me that definition. I am a farmer. That's what he claimed to be. Isn't that what Jesus said he was? I came to sow the seed. (laughs) And in Matthew 13, he said the seed, some falls on good soil, some falls on bad soil, and he goes into a teaching on that. I'm a sower of seed. And then he says, this next sentence is, is rather difficult in the Hebrew. It says, for a man, and then the New King James says, taught me to keep cattle from my youth. Now, I think this is not a good translation. We know that the first word is very clear. It says a man. It's the word Adam, Adam. The last word is very clear. From my youth, that's the word naor, youth. It's very clear. It could be a small child or up to a teenager or even older. But this one phrase, taught me to keep cattle, it's the Hebrew word kana. And it's used 
85 times in the Old Testament. And every time it's used, it's used to say to possess, to buy, or to purchase. So how they come up with the translation, taught me to keep cattle, (laughs) I don't know. But the grammar of it is, it has happened unto me. And I think that uh, probably the best translation, uh, I think that the NAS and then the Amplified Version, they both translate it this way. For a man sold me as a slave in my youth, or I have been made a slave or a bond slave from my youth, the Amplified says. And I think that's right. I was bought. I was bought. It, it made it so that I was bought, or I was bought inferring to slavery from my youth. And that's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 20. He said, Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be a slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And then in Philippians 2, said he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, being found as an appearance of man. He humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. It says there that he came as a bondservant into this world. And then notice in verse 6, I believe another passage of Jesus. And one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? That's a horrible translation. It's clearly the word hand. It's always translated hand. But it, it's a weird thing. It says between the hand. And, and of course, the, those writing it would have said, what's that mean, between the hand? It literally means between the hand and the arm, referring to the wrist. And, and it's, it's, it's peculiar because they have done actual studies to say if a nail went through a person's hand and their body had to hang, could their hand support that? And they've done studies and it says, no, the hand just rips right through the nail and the hand comes out. But they have found that if the hand comes through the bottom, or the nail comes through the bottom part of the hand and then comes through the wrist outside, so the back of the hole is actually on the wrist, that then the hands can support human weight. And I believe this is exactly what we're going to see with Christ. The nail was in his hand, in the back part of his hand, but if you were to turn his arm over, you'd see it through the wrist. And it says here, no, those wounds came. Uh, He said, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Look at that. Even after they was crucified, he still says, they're my friends. And then in verse 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion. Says the Lord of hosts, Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. Jesus quoted this very verse. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 31, he said, All you guys, just like the scripture says, Strike the shepherd, and the sheep scatter, so you're going to all scatter from me tonight. And then in verse 8 and 9, it's talking about that tribulation period. And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that... Two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. And I think this is referring uh, when the Antichrist is rejected by the Jews in that three-and-a-half-year period of the seven-year tribulation period, he goes and starts wiping them out, and two-thirds of them throughout the world are killed, but one-third make it. And I will bring that one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, test them as gold is tested, and they will call on my name, and I will answer them, and I will say, this is my people, and each one will say, the Lord is my God. I love that picture where the Lord comes to the rock city of Petra and he opens it up. And there the Jews come, and it says, as a shepherd leads the sheep, so he leads them up to Jerusalem. And there he's going to come, and they're going to look on him. There's a question that people often ask, what is the only man-made thing that we'll see in heaven. The pierce marks of Jesus. John saw, in Revelations, he saw Jesus, and he was a lamb as though he had been slain. I don't think Jesus is going to leave those scars to to, uh, put us down, but to remind us of his great love for us. And when we see them, it's going to bring greater glory unto him. As we remember how God loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son to be pierced through for your transgressions. That the chastisement of our well-being fell upon him and that by his stripes we are healed. The Jews, the veil remains over their eyes, but the Bible tells us that when you look unto the Lord, the veil is taken away. And you know, there's some of you here today who have 
come unto church here and you think that you're right with God because of your religious beliefs or your religious actions. But it says many will come in that day and say, Lord, Lord. And he's going to say, be gone, you doers of iniquity. But no, open your heaven unto us too. We've heard your teachings. We've done miracles in your name. We've seen demons cast out. We've been a part of all of that. And he says, I have never known you. You see, the reality is, is that Jesus has come that you might individually know him, love him, serve him, walk with him. That's the joy of Christianity. We really know him. As we repent of our sins, we look upon him. And the Bible says to those who love God, how do you show your love? Jesus said, by keeping my commandments, by doing the things I say. And then it goes on to say in 1 John that those who love God, the things of God are not burdensome. You see, it's not jumping through the religious hoop of coming to church today. It's loving the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and wanting to serve him and wanting to, you're here today because you love him so much. You want to learn more about him. You want to be strengthened. You want to be washed in the word and strengthened that you could serve him in purity and love more and more. And if you don't know Jesus in that intimate, personal way, you will be rejected on that day. Well, man, I'm going to church. I even read my Bible twice this week. What more do you want? God doesn't want that. He doesn't want me to go to church? No. He wants you to come and be the church and worship him because you love him. You mean doesn't want me to read my Bible? No, he, he wants you to fellowship with him in the word. Doesn't want me to sing to him? No, he wants you because you love him so much. You just, oh Lord, I love you. You are my king and I adore you. It's really something that's happened in the heart where you really have come to know Christ. And more importantly, he knows you and he speaks to you every day. And as he speaks to you, you say, Lord, I want to live that way. I want to obey you. We don't live perfectly. The righteous man falls seven times. But we get up seven times because we know him. We know of his grace. We know of his love. And we follow him. Let's all bow our heads here this morning. Lord, we thank you again for your word. And boy, these are some tough passages. And only those who really want to study your word could have a joy in such a study. But Lord, we come before you now and, and we know there's some real serious issues here that are still facing us now. That there's some who have come here religious and you want them to leave here with a relationship with you. There's some that have come here today going through the motions of, of a dead religion. They have a form of godliness, but there's no power there's no power to love you. There's no power to worship you. There's no power to seek your face. There's no power to get on their knees and, and cry out to you for their own soul and for the souls of the world around them. They don't understand heaven. They don't understand hell. They don't understand the joy of truly being in fellowship with you where your spirit is bearing with their spirit, their children of God. Lord, I ask today that none would leave here without that knowledge of you, without knowing you and loving you. Here in these, this book, you give us all these details on the end times, stuff that we're as Christians not going to experience, but yet even in the tribulation period, you're going to be crying out. Look at all these words that I've told you ahead of time that are going to happen in this seven years to be amazed and to realize you are the God, that your word is all true. Lord, we come before you now and, and ask that you'd touch those hearts. So all heads are bowed and eyes closed this morning. The Holy Spirit's tugging on some hearts. He's knocking on the door of some hearts. And he's saying, that's you. This message is for you. I brought you here today and this is what I am saying to you. I love you. I am giving you right now a spirit of grace and supplication that you might come unto me, that you might repent of your sins and that you might come in a fellowship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Open the door of your heart. There's some of you who say, man, I've been religious for five years, 10 years, 50 years. And you're telling me this religion has availed me nothing. Yep, it hasn't. 
You've learned maybe a lot of facts about a person, Jesus, but they're not intimate facts with your friend, your husband, your father, your savior. But it's not too late. There's breath in your nostrils. There's a mind that's functioning. He's telling you now, come unto him. And if that's your heart today, just lift your hand up. Say, Brian, pray for me. I, I need to get right with God. I, what I have is a religious thing. God bless you. Is there any others that are saying that? That's me. I, yes, yes, a number of people now. That's me. I'm, I'm religious. I'm not, I'm not living for God. I can't say that in him I live and move and have my being. I can't say that I spend time with him in the word and he speaks to me. But I want that. If you're here today saying, if you have a question in your mind, if I were to die right now, if the Lord were to come right now, I would be caught up together with him. God wants you to know for certain that your life with him, that your name is written in the book of life, but you can't be prideful of heart. You have to humble yourself. You got to lift your hand right now saying, that's me. I'm, I'm, I'm that sinner. I need salvation. And God wants to do that for you. Lord, touch these hearts, God. So many people lifted their hands and And Lord, I know there's so many hearts that even beyond that you're touching right now that didn't have that boldness. But Lord, just move on them now. Give them the strength, Lord, to fall upon that rock and be broken. That you can heal them and strengthen them and and woo them into that beautiful love relationship with you. What we're going to do right now, in just a moment, I'm going to ask all the congregation to stand. And those of you who lifted your hands and some of you who didn't, who should have, you're saying, oh, I should have. Right now, you need to get up and you need to come forward. The Bible says, if you're willing to proclaim me before men, I'm willing to proclaim me before my Father. If, I'm, if you're unwilling to proclaim me before men, I'm unwilling to proclaim me before the Father. It's absolutely essential that you come with a humble heart, with a heart that says, I don't care what anybody else thinks. I'm a sinner and today is my day to be right with God. I know some have thought me to be right with God, but they're wrong. I know in my heart that I would have been one of those people that the Lord would have said, no, I'm not letting you into heaven. It would have been a shocking thing to many, but I know in my heart that would be right, but not anymore. I want my life to be right with God. This is your opportunity to get up from where you're at and come and stand here in the front. And I want to lead you in a prayer. And let's all stand right now. Right now, get up. Just take a moment. Those of you, several of you, many of you raised your hand. Get out right now. Be bold and make your way right now. Say, it's me. I'm coming unto Christ. Yes, praise the Lord. Thank you, God. I live for you alone. Every breath that I take. There's many others. Thank you. We're going to sing this one more time. you got to be bold. you got to be quick. We don't want to... Manipulate your emotions. It has to be a true work of the Holy Spirit. But yield. Don't say later, tonight, tomorrow, next week. I've already done it in my heart while you were praying right then. Make it right now, this public confession of saying, I'm coming unto Christ right now with all these people. Make your way right now. Be bold. Do it. Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my soul. Live for you alone. Every breath that I take, every moment I'm away. Lord, have your way in me. Lord, we thank you for these that have made that bold step. You said, I don't care what anybody else thinks. I know that I need to yield my life completely, volitionally, with my will unto Jesus Christ. Lord, help them now. Years ago when I made this same step, and you're amongst family and friends, many of the people here, most of the people have made the same step. Somebody help me pray, and I want to help you pray right now. Let it express the attitude of your heart, and God will meet you right now. Dear Heavenly Father, it's all as a church, as a family, pray to make them feel comfortable. Dear Heavenly Father, I come unto you because I know you love me. And I say plainly, I am a sinner. I've been wicked. I've been selfish. I've not been in your will. But I know that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to be my substitute, to be tortured, to die and to rise again, that I might be forgiven right now. 
Thank you. Forgive me now of my sins by the blood of Christ. And I give my life unto you. Come now into my heart and be my Lord. From this day forward, I want to live my life in submission to you. In Jesus' name. Lord, bless all those who have heard your word today in truth. Strengthen them mightily in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Well, greet one another around you and have some great fellowship. There's a lot of food out there prepared and have some time uh, together as a family. Tonight, back over at the church. God bless you. Those who came forward, hang out just a minute.